Hello, I'm Josephine Burton and welcome to the Dash Arts podcast, seeing the world through an artistic lens. In January 2020, we kicked off our current programme, The Europeans, creating a tongue-in-cheek hall of fame of artists who have, in some way, left an artistic footprint across Europe. We began with the surrealist artist, photographer and poet, Dora Maar, who was born in France in 1907. There's an exhibition of Dora Maar's work this past winter at Tate Modern and before that at the Centre Pompidou in Paris, and we brought the curators Karolina Lewandowska and Damaris Amau to London to discuss her work. Alongside these two, we invited poet Victoria Aduque Boule and Finnish-based Iranian musician Maruf Majidi, who was visiting the UK at the time, to work with me on another forthcoming fabulous Dash Arts project. It was a fantastic conversation, which we'll play now in an edited version, with poetry, music and conversation. Damaris and Carolina showed slides from their show as they spoke. I'm only sorry that we can't show you her beautiful images to accompany the chat. Most of the images, however, that we talked about are definitely searchable online. I'm going to jump us straight into the conversation now as Damaris kicks off answering a question about Dora Maar's appeal. Everyone was fascinated by her because, you know, she, she was good-looking and she was modern. And, um, and first, um, so maybe I could tell, because you talked about Europe, her mother was French and her dad was from from Serbia and he was an architect. He made a part of his career in Paris and uh, during um, Doramar childhood they went to Argentina. So Doramar, um, uh, she, at the beginning in childhood, she lived between Argentina and Paris and then uh, she decided to, uh, to start like um, artistic courses and um, she went to uh, a, a school of graphic design and then she learned photography because photography was something you it was not a new uh, uh, a new job a new um, uh, but it was um, something you know it was an it gives her it gave her a new perspective for 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 her and she decided to learn photography and to start her studio and to do some exhibition and she met a lot of interesting people the surrealist Picasso uh, and a lot of um, people and did she start she made all her studies in France so she was she spent her youth between France and Argentina, and Argentina yes and so she went to high school um, in France in Paris in the 16th district and then she started a school for graphic design but it was a, a specific course only for women it was a course it was the French the name in French it's Comité des Dames and it was a kind of school that wanted to um, encourage uh, women and to maybe to to have a look, uh, I don't I don't know the name in maybe in in, in English to encadrer um, to yes to frame the um, the um, you know the 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 young yeah, yes the young woman who wanted to have job in graphic design um, field and so she studied uh, like design uh, every course but she didn't study photography there. She went to a specific school um, opened by the city. It was um, the name was uh, the École Technique de Cinéma and Photography of the Ville de Paris, and um, and there she learned photography. And and um, 
I'm slightly jumping ahead because we'll t- come back to talk a little bit about the, jo- the choices that you both made when you, when you d- made the decision about the way you were going to hang it. But largely, the exhibition runs chronologically. Um, and so you see, a v- you see her turn back to away from photography in the 40s and back to uh, the, the painting. And is, that she, is it around that time she left Paris? Is that, is, that how, is that how the sort of around that time she left Paris or she, was, she stayed in Paris? No, there was a very short moment when she really left Paris. After her studies, she decided to join her father, who was still in Argentina, and to try to set up her professional career in Argentina for one or two years. We don't know exactly. But then it didn't work very well, and she came back to Paris when, the, for example, the illustration press market was much bigger. And she, could, uh, and she also found a partner uh, with whom she could open a studio. Um, and then she didn't. Uh, she didn't leave Paris. There was. I mean, what you probably mean is that she. It's known that she was living also in the south of France, but it was only for like summer and like late. So it's. She was always Parisian. And and the and the uh, the exhibition has a real shows that she was obviously very sought after as a commercial photographer. For, for you know, in the in the in the in the twenties and the thirties, she was extreme. Was she? It, 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 the suggestion is that she was very successful. Was she quite? It is. It's what we discovered. You know, we knew her as one of the photographers close to surrealists. Yes. But when we started the research work, we discovered this modern woman who just was an excellent entrepreneur. And she opened a successful studio. And when we started to look for her photographs in the illustrated press, I mean, can you believe we counted more than 40 titles within a period of five or six years? It's enormous. I mean, if you imagine the number of contacts Mm. um, she had to have to have all these Mm -hmm. contracts. And then uh, thanks also to the archive of the negatives we have, we could see how many people passed through her studio. So we know it about Man Ray, but we don't necessarily know it uh, for Dora Mar. So it is a story that appeared after, I mean, once the research was done. Uh, because, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's just statistics. It's phenomenal. And were there other women working at that time in, the, in that world? Yeah, of course. I mean, there, for example, another successful photographer was Laurel Banguillot. She was older than Dora Mar and she had a very uh, elegant uh, studio. Uh, but, you know, Dora Marsh starts um, uh, her uh, photographic career at the very beginning of the 1930s. And this is precisely the moment when there was perhaps not half-half women and men photographers, but almost. And there were many, many young women who decided to become photographers. They were usually at the beginning, like uh, it is the case of Dora Marr, they usually wanted to become painters. But then, uh, you know, photography was a nice compromise. And even in the 19th century, uh, probably part of you know this, but photography was recommended as um, as a job. I mean, as as a métier uh, for, for 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 women. Uh, yeah, that's very interesting. But she stopped. But she moved away from photography. Yes, she wanted to become a painter. I mean, she wanted to be a painter at the very beginning. And when she met Picasso, it's he who convinced her. Right to turn to painting, uh, and it is, uh, perhaps we'll come back to this, but yeah, you know, perhaps you want to discuss this meeting let's later. Let's do it. No, well, we do, but you know what, let's, you've given, you've wet our appetites, let's discuss the meeting. Uh, uh, I just, uh, I mean, what we also understood is that the moment when they meet is that she's 
young, beautiful, successful woman. She's, you know, she's at this time, she has a lot of exhibitions in Paris, individual, but also together with Surrealist. So she's really on vogue. And Picasso, he's almost like in depression. I mean, he has pri I mean, personal problems and he stopped to paint for several months. So, I mean, from a situation when we were talking uh, that, okay, we are working on a project of Dora Mar and the people were asking us who, and we had to say, you know, Picasso's lover and Picasso's model. So, uh, and it was the only like connotation that could place this person. So to come from this image to a discovery that actually when they meet, she saves him and it's she first who takes him uh, in, I mean, in portrait. This was quite interesting. So, but but this was a, a very important shift for her because this actually made her come back to painting, which was it is a controversial decision from the historical point of view or critical point of view. Sorry, what's a critical? I mean, it's, she was a successful photographer, so yes. she could continue to, to 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 be it. It's just that Picasso didn't consider photography as art. So, 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 I mean, we're jumping ahead, and I bet it's too, it's too good, a, that's too good a place to leave it before we do. Um, I, I mean, it's extremely striking when you walk through the exhibition. You see, you know, you see her amazing work, her photographer, extraordinary surrealist images, life in London, life in Barcelona, her commercial pictures. And then you meet her in the context of Picasso, and from then on there is no more. There's a little bit of the photography where she doesn't, of, which aren't about people. But from then on, there's no, there's no more, there are no more photographs, and that's really the case. I mean, you didn't find anything else from your from your archive. Sorry? Do you have a theory about why she stopped taking photographs? Uh, um, because she was uh, because at the beginning when she started, uh, she wanted to be a painter, and she she I think that she had the conviction at the moment she she met Picasso that now she has to dedicate her life to painting. So that she has to give up photography because it was uh, commercial, and so uh, she has to and to catch up the time also because during five or six, year, six years she did photography, and so she had to work again <coughs> to go back to drawing and to sketch. So she wanted to be, you know, into into painting to be a real artist. A real artist. I, I mean, I, I, I'm, I want to, I'm going to bring in Victoria, but the, before, before I do, I want to say the thing that I was, Marufa and I were just at the Tate Modern today, and you turn the corner from seeing the Guernica picture on the wall, and, which is her documenting of Picasso's Guernica, and you turn the corner, and there's one, the, the last figurative picture in your exhibition is a, is a self-portrait of her um, that she gave to her doctor, and her eyes look so sad very difficult moment in her life and uh, it's probably very faithful and truth um, uh, self-portrait we don't have it in the in the presentation but it's very close um, uh, it's a close-up of, of her face frontal and it is a moment just after the war when uh, she was in like real depression it was during the war she lost her mother soon after I think that the portrait, we don't know the exact date, it was, I think, just after the death of, um, of Nushan, or if she... It was just before. Just before. before. But she was, like, really separated from Picasso, and it was just, like, really over, and, uh, yeah, so, so it was a very difficult moment uh, for her, and you see it from the, from the painting. 
I think we'll probably come back to this, but I, I want to bring Victoria in a little bit. Victoria, um, uh, we, we introduced Victoria to Dora Maar in the context of this evening, and, um, and, and you went around the exhibition last week. Tell us your thoughts. Um, yeah, I, I didn't, like I say, I didn't know much about her before you um, got in contact with me, and so I, I was quite excited, actually, because it's nice to meet an artist without too much information, um, and so actually before I went to the exhibition I was very uh, certain not to look up too, in, too much information about her because I wanted to kind of see what my own feelings and thoughts were um, and I, I think I was actually quite shocked that I didn't know about her um, I, I think I had heard of her before in the context of Picasso um, and I know that's frustrating but it, it it was interesting to just see how prolific she was in terms of like how much work she was producing, the scale of the work, um, but also the sense of freedom. I, I got a real sense that she was someone who, who didn't have any limits on her life in what she did and how she made her work and where she made her work, um, who she photographed, um, and, and also a deep... Uh, a real, I mean, maybe because of the light and the use of the studio, but um, a, a lot of use of shadow, a lot of darkness, but but a real, um, I think her inner world must have been very vibrant, um, if that makes sense. I, I got a real sense that there's always something under the surface, even in her commercial images. Um, and I'm, yeah, I'm quite interested in that, yeah. And, and did you? I mean, wh one of the one of the wonderful reasons why we've been able to bring Victoria and and Marif into into this conversation is it's really this point that Demaris and and Carolina that we're referring to, which is this sense that we haven't, in some ways, we haven't heard her voice before, we haven't seen her work because she lived under the shadows, in the darkness, perhaps, um, of Picasso. Did it touch something in your own work as a as a poet? Um. I mean, I, I wouldn't say it touched something specific in my work in, in that sense of her being in Picasso's shadow, but I think it, it kind of... It, it was just another chapter in the sense of um, great men or movements which have men at the forefront as the, the poster people but are actually very much driven by women in some way. Um, and it made me think about... Yeah, just, just that sense of who else has been lost under the shadow of someone who we know as a great man. Whether they are or aren't, it's almost not the point. Like, who else has been lost in their shadow, um, you know, because they were a woman at that time? And, you know, and perhaps their work was even more interesting, you know? Um, so it just really made me curious in that sense about the scale of how many lives we don't know about because they were overshadowed, in a sense. Is this a good segue in, in for you to talk about your work? <laughs> um, tell, tell us a little bit about your work as a, as a poet and writer and performer. Um, yeah, so my work deals mostly with, um, at the moment, with language, but also, I think, in relation to this exhibition, um, when I mentioned the inner world, I think there's, there's a link there, because particularly in my... Um, so I'm doing a PhD right now, and it's creative writing, and it's poetry um, and I'm very interested in an idea of interiority so there's there's that quote by um, gosh I've forgotten the person who said it but 
someone once said, prepare a face to meet the faces that you'll meet. And so that says something about our external life, but there's this inner life which is a space of liberation that I'm quite interested in. And I think with Dora Maar, she had a rich sense of that. I don't know, but I, I feel that she had that. Um, and so, yeah, in my, in my poetry, I try to sort of convey that in some way and um, in my explorations of language and diaspora and um, heritage or the loss of heritage and um, migration, um, race, um, gender, all these different things, yeah. I was thinking in that one of the many reasons why it's been fabulous to introduce you into this conversation Mm -hmm. is the work that you've done with your mother tongue project Mm -hmm. which is about kind of giving voice to some people whose poetry and whose language we don't often hear Mm -hmm. and I felt that was very rich in the context of the Dora Maar exhibition and particularly Mm -hmm. the way that Caroline and Demaris have have have, uh, taken us on the journey through their work Mm -hmm. and I I, can you tell us a little bit about mother tongue okay Um, yeah so a lot of, so some of my work is very much in collaboration with film. So um, Mother Tongues is a film project where myself and um, three other poets, each of African descent, um, we got well an arts council grant to make a project where we each took one of our poems and asked our mothers to translate that poem into her first language. Um, and in the films, you see a mother-daughter conversation, and then you first see the mother's translation of the poem into, for example, Yoruba um, or Shona or Igbo or Ga, which is my parents' language. And then you see the original version in the poet's voice in English. Um, And yeah, I think think it covered a lot of ground in terms of relationships or um, generational heritage, um, language. and, um, And I was very deliberate about putting the the mother tongue language first because I wanted the audience to have an experience of language as I've had it, which is as music, because I didn't understand... I wasn't taught my parents' um, mother tongue. So I have that sense of the cadence of a language rather than language is always being about communication. Yeah. And presumably, will you perform some of your work? Presumably not from that project. Uh, I think I've got one poem. No, I didn't do that one. I have a few poems, but I don't have anything from that project. Can we hear something from your work? for sure. Luna. By sleeping in the dark, I've heard it said, a girl realigns her chemicals according to the clock face of old. With a pair of of heavy curtains and a thermometer, she maps her inbuilt almanac to a graph and then divines from this the times at which she is most magical. This dream time troubles the veil between worlds, incites visions, throws oceans against coastlines like jealous lovers. Let a girl feel this amber sphere just once, and she'll forget what she heard about God and her body, seeing what difference is left knowing how books have burned over both. Science, too, brutal and unforgiving, until it caught the eclipse on camera, the follicle exploding like bubble wrap, the ballooned egg in release, until the window for conception slams shut, faster than Pandora's trinket box or the door of an an aircraft, one small step for man, 
one giant leap. But when us girls were at school, we spoke of our landings plainly, like weeds, like inconvenient blossomings, marooning the flower bed, claiming what wanted only to be good, clean fun, leaving a crimson imprint after slipping in, noiseless through the night, like a new moon. What it means. The campus nurse offers up pills like penny sweets, means it when she says, it's just one less thing to worry about. Her pen is crossing the prescription sheet like a finish line. It's okay. There are many freedoms. In the first world, freedom from bloodshed is tasted between the legs. I don't judge. How would she know I have come to love the cup spilling over, the floor of the bath, a Rothko on fiberglass, an opening ceremony, a private showing circa this month? There is nothing like knowing I am an orchestra, only rehearsing. This poem is actually about uh, another artist um, who I also think had a very rich interior life, um, but on the other hand, didn't live as long as Dorma. Um, So this is about Anna. About Anna. The truth is, nobody knows how Anna Mendieta met her death. It would appear she was pushed. Some distance below, the doorman said he heard a woman shout, no, and then the sound as her body hit the top of the diner, so hard her face left a mark like a postage stamp. In the photo, she is naked and feathered. She looks like the first woman, like she doesn't know what a camera is, that somewhere in the world it is believed these things can steal a soul. Her arms are out as if to say, you move them like this to fly, like this. See, her feet are apart. You can see the sphere of her hips, the thicket between her legs. I look at her and think, this is the true work of the body to adorn itself and be comfortable, unaware. I myself am bored of fig leaves, of shames that I did not choose. Thank you so much, Victoria. It's really beautiful. It was really lovely. Thank you for sharing your poems. I'd never heard of Anna Vieta. Amandieta, can you tell us about why, how, how, she, how she inspired? She made a statement about using her body about using her body in relation to the land. So she would bury herself in sand or she'd make imprints of her body in water and, 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 or even um, in, in sort of rivers. And she was making a statement about displacement. Um, she was making a statement about the female body um, and she was very strong in her views about how painful that 
experience of displacement is. How, I think she came from Cuba, and she, but she moved to the U.S. at quite a young age, so she had that experience of being ripped from that home. And, um, but also the sense in which, through her death, um, the trajectory that she was on was cancelled. And I think, again, with Dora Maar, even though Dora Maar survived, and I think survived is the right word, um, there is that sense of even if you do survive or you do live to that grand old age, your legacy can still be interrupted, whether you, you know, whether you die or not as a women artist. That, that, that's a beautiful way to return to Dora, to Dora Maar and ask you how... how, how was it your decision to curate? You know, did you approach this entrepreneur? How did how did that kind of how did the uh, what was the um, inst- like the impetus that led to this exhibition? You know, the, uh, this exhibition Dora Mar was in the air for a very long time. Uh, Centre Pompidou was trying to do a monography of Dora Mar when she was still alive. We found letters from our, I mean, colleague colleagues from previous time trying to convince her and she it, it even went quite far. It was announced and it was cancelled one month before the opening. Uh, so um, it was perhaps not that the retrospective that was that big as okay. this one but but still and uh, uh, from the other, so and uh, after her death, we in we uh, bought um, and re- received um, what Damaris mentioned, a photographic part of her um, archive. Uh, we already had a certain number of surrealist prints. Uh, the research on inventory was done by, by Damaris. It took uh, a certain number of, of years. And from the other hand, we had our colleague, who is also co-author of this project, Amanda Maddox, uh, curator at the Getty Museum at Los Angeles, that was um, very much interested in the work of Dora Mar. She was coming to research. We knew that she's trying to do a project at the Getty. And in a moment, there was like a good energy and good configuration to propose it as a project for Pompidou in collaboration with the Getty. And then we had a very short time to, to discover. And can you imagine that when we started to work on it, it was... Um, the space that we that was I mean that that we received was the very prestigious space at Saint Pompidou on the sixth floor, but it's very big. It's what thousand square meters, and from what we knew of Doramar, we thought that we won't have enough works to to fill the space. So we we thought okay, we will have to close it, and then more we were working, more we were discovering that it is not enough space <laughs> for this artist. And we completely rethought the exhibition after having discovered things in the private archives because it was so much dispersed. There was the whole part of her work that was absent from the institutional collections. And so she was better known, she was better known then as a surrealist and until you began this investigation, you thought of her more as a surrealist artist. Yes, since the, um, since the 70s, her surrealist work were quite known, like the Portrait du Bu, that kind of photo montages. So since the 70s, and a lot of art critics, um, uh, photography researchers were trying to knock at the, her door saying, okay, we want to, to buy some photographs or to exhibit some photographs. And she, and she was 
really reluctant, and we've seen it in the letters. She said, no, maybe you should work on someone else, not me. So she was really reluctant with uh, the photographic legacy. She didn't, she didn't want to revisit her legacy at all? No. And, and tell me, and so as you came to look at all of this work, and I understand that the exhibition space is, more, is larger than the space in Tate Modern, so... It's a, it was a bigger exhibition in France. Um, what, was the, like, how were the, what were the decisions about how you would tell her story? And so obviously we don't meet Picasso. In fact, we have very little word of Picasso until quite far in the show. Even her surrealist work is quite far into the show. The show in, it's in the middle. But you, you, take a, you build up the story very slowly and very carefully. And how did you come to tell it that way? You know, it's, uh, it, this is, how to say... I don't know if you agree, if you share this experience, but when when one starts to work on a, an exhibition project, you just have to do the research and listen what this, what you find tells you and what is the story that is told by the objects and by the person uh, and the, the, the authors that you're working on. So it's, uh, of course, these are our choices, but first you have to listen carefully. And this is what was told by the archive, but what we found... Um, but also a lot, a lot of new discoveries. Till the three months before the opening exhibitions, we were still discovering her work. Uh, one of the anecdotes that that played a role that is that we had one more person who called us, saying, "Oh, I have some Dora Mars." So we said, "Okay, the list of works is closed, but we come and show us." And we have somebody who came with three hundred of her works, <laughs> and said, okay, okay, so. We just we, we just have to modify the list of works, so it's uh, it's not only our choices; yeah. it's it's how it happens. And for us, it was obvious. We uh, the, the the show in Paris started with uh, a photograph of her with the Coupola Garçon, but also it started with a very funny fragment of a film, when a film by her friend. The film was realized just after the war, and one of the protagonists of the film is a photographer, a woman photographer, and on her T-shirt, it, I mean, it's written Dora. And it was a heroine based on this figure of commercial, successful, independent photographer. So we played also with this image that, okay, there are two legends about Dora Mara, not only the weeping woman, because this was her nickname, a weeping woman after Picasso's portrait, but also the photographer, the photographer. And, and so this was evident that we had first to, to present her as a successful uh, commercial photographer. Which, which you did very well. Sorry, you were going to say... No, because it's the, um, the facts. It's history. It started like this before Picasso. So we, tr- we were trying to, like, to stick... Today's trade. And the, the energy that I got from the exhibition is she's just this sort of endless searcher. She was kind of curious and experimenting all the time um, and, and, and fascinated by the everyday. And, and such a, she had such a phenomenal eye. Like the picture of that, the life in London, the, the, the people that she finds in London and Paris and Barcelona are just extraordinary. Yes, and what really moved me is when we discovered all the works, the late, late works, like imagining Dora Ma, 80 years old, still going in the dark room, yeah. trying to do something again and again. And I think 
today I'm still like really moved by this idea of a woman trying to express to find forms and to go back you can imagine like she can't or maybe she can't go out because she's 80 she can't go in the street she can't carry a, a camera it's too heavy too difficult it's okay I'm going to find the the easiest way to do something again it's just to go in the the dark room and try to play with lights so um, yes yeah, so it's something I don't know if I identify myself with Dorama but I'm really interested in her like in her project and the fact <coughs> you said like freedom and independence the fact that she was trying to do she's she has she's really fierce yes and she has mm. something really interesting for this I, I i mean i i can i can feel that and you that throws all the way through to come back to that question i was just saying about or to the point that i was just saying about her curiosity She's, to me, she was extremely... I mean, it comes through with her work with the commercial artists, with all of the picture, the people who wanted to work with her. But really, she was very interested in, in finding people and ideas and faces. And that was very striking to me in the, the latter half of her life, that she stepped away from that completely, that curiosity. Did you, did you think about that when you were curating, when you were looking at her kind of whole work? I think that one might have to remember that she was a very good photographer. Uh, she had very original surrealist vision, but at the same time, she also was very much inscribed in her time with her photography. Uh, this kind of documentary, this kind of commercial photography, this kind of fashion photography, this kind of street portraits was also done at this time by a certain number of photographers in Paris. Yes. So it is not completely like a unique and okay. apart vision. With her painting, she was, you know, she's like 30, um, uh, she's 30 when she goes back to painting, but then the war comes, and she's a little bit, I don't know, she's a little bit not in phase with, um, when the war ends, she's not part of the same generation of painter that take over. And, and, and she just starts her own research, and this and in and here she's really alone with her research yeah. and independent and this is kind of being brave mm. i think she she makes her own path yeah she doesn't decide to do informel just to be able to exhibit mm. uh, she just steps and back. she continued to have critical success with her with her own with her new work in the 40s and 50s, as, as she continued on oh, her yes. new... She, she, had, had she had some shows. She had one show in London, too, in 57 and 58. So um, until, we'll say, the end of the 50s, she's still on the scene. Mm -hmm. And she's, uh, she's part of collective, um, uh, collective uh, shows, and uh, she's, she still has link. But as Carolina said, she's in the same time you know, and at the at that moment in Paris and also in England, you the pop art is starting, the da, the the new the neo dada movement is starting. So, and she's not in that kind of dynamic, so she's not really in the avant garde. Mm -hmm. um, so that's why also can explain that she's she was forgotten for painting works. This is a brilliant moment for us to bring in the. Um Marif. So Marif and I spent some time together. He just flew in from Finland, as I said earlier, and he, we spent some time together in uh, Tate Modern this afternoon. Marif, what, would, what, was you, what were your thoughts from seeing the, seeing the work in the flesh, like in the gallery? 
excellent, excellent uh, photographer, really passionate artist, but uh, uh, confusing her the variety of work. I I didn't know her at all before you mentioned, and uh, I try actually to and. Uh, yeah, of course. Whatever the mainly you find that uh, she was the lover of Picasso. There's the first thing you find when you s try to find anything about her, and uh, and also some beautiful, actually, poems. Really, really beautiful. She did write poetry, but we couldn't. But it's not shown in the. You didn't. Fi you couldn't find a way to show the poetry in the in the exhibition. Not not really, but also there is part of the archives that we found very very late, and this was the part with the with the poetry, and it's not a very easy part. She was, she was, I would say, rather amateur uh, uh, writer, but it's very sensitive. It's very honest, but it goes together with. She wasn't doing really the diary, but some notes about her feelings, and and we just found it too too late because it was in private hands. Right, and we and we didn't have the time also to find a proper way to show this. Should we invite uh, someone to 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 tell them, like a comedian, as one of our colleagues did with the last Bacon? Um, we had a Bacon uh, Francis Bacon show at the at the Pompidou, and he chose to to bring some comedians to to read some literature. But we didn't have the time to speak to to think about like a proper way to introduce like literature. Thank you for that. So, so we, we felt her voice in the air without without hearing it in the exhibition, but it spoke to you the the her her adventures as an artist. Yeah, really, really. I mean, it's um, the first expression was really passionate artist, but uh, very professional and uh, and, and I think ama amazing photographer. Really, the angles and the perspectives just un unbelievably beautiful. She uh, and you, you, so Marif, you're a musician. You're originally from Iran. Yes. You've been living in Finland for uh, 15 years. 15 years. How, how did, did something about that? I mean, the thing that I um, found from the photo her as a photographer is that she has this phenomenal sense of being both inside and outside the world that she's depicting. And I wondered if that was an experience. I mean, that's that's my fear, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on whether that's something. You know, maybe it's just behind being something about being behind the lens, so you're not in the in the space. But perhaps also, well, I'd be interested in whether that's something that that, that spoke to you in your work. Yeah, I mean, I I found that that uh, ongoing. It's uh, just my experience based on what. Today I experienced that in the in the exhibition that there was a the sense of this ongoing search for her identity, kind of you know through her works, especially in her latest works. So she was jumping a lot from a style to another styles. You could you could see that that she kind of maybe felt that she was a bit outsider in the, in different styles. So she could. Um, she she tried to find her ways in a in a way that I I think she had it already in her photographies, but in in his paintings. So she there was this ongoing ongoing search for 
for her voice. That was something I could relate it to, you know. Okay. Did you say you'd written some a song in song dedicated to her? Yeah, I I actually found this uh, a, a really quite actually long uh, poem in the internet that I was not sure if it's her or somebody else. Later I found it's some. It was. Uh, a lady that I don't remember her name was was uh, she were writing to about her, and uh, there was a, a, a very beautiful lines. But the the very last line she's saying that Picasso give my face back. It was a a very beautiful. I want I want my face back. It was something like that. If I'm not wrong, yeah, you you know. I think I think is Liat Liat. I think I saw. Is you are you in the room? Liat, is that is that the poet who's going to be at Tate Modern on Friday night? Who wrote that poem? Uh huh. What's her name? Grace Nichols. Grace Nichols. Thank you so much, Liat. Thank you, Liat, for that. Liat um, is 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 a uh, programming of Tate Late this Friday night at um, at the Tate Modern, and part of their part of them will be dedicating their evening to to uh, to Dora Ma and Grace Nichols, who wrote that poem, will be performing there. Oh yeah. So we can hear her. We could hear her write, performing her poem in the in the flesh. Oh yeah. So I got inspired by that by that line and uh, tried to. Uh, make something based on that line. Marif, while you're while you're getting your instrument ready, what what is the instrument that you're playing? Uh, the this one is setar, is a Iranian instrument, Persian instrument. The the previous one, the first one, is called tambur, which is used in. Uh, it actually comes from a western part of Iran. It belongs to a very small minority and a religion it's very old religion called Zarastorialis and uh, nowadays they call them Yaresan and uh, yeah that instrument is only used in uh, certain ceremonies to to play that music which belongs to that uh, minority but this one is used in uh, Persian classical music transported us with this beautiful track. Rather than simply include a short excerpt on the podcast, we decided to include the full six-minute version, which was inspired by Dora Maher and Grace Nichols' poem The Weeping Woman at the end of the podcast, and don't forget to catch it. Thank you. Marif, that was absolutely beautiful, thank you. And you really, you really created that for this evening. Well, thank you. That was a treat and a privilege to hear. Thank you. I, I, I think it's a wonderful moment for us to kind of talk a little bit about her legacy. You know, obviously she's inspired Marif to, to create the music and touched, touched um, Victoria's soul as well. Are there... Oh, how, 
are there artists that we know that have been influenced by her? Photographers, artists, are there is are there is there a, a world that she has that have sort of look up to her in kind of modern France, contemporary France? You know, I would say that until very recently, not really, because she was seen as Picasso's lover and as weeping woman. Uh, so the um, painting Weeping Woman itself inspired a certain number of artists. A portrait of Dora Maar by Man Ray inspired mm-hmm. an artist who made a video. But until very recently, and actually this exhibition, I think that is not for nothing for that. For example, the new, the very recent work of a French artist, Orlan, 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 I would say in English, but Orlan, it's in French. She, her, her new series is dedicated to Dora Maar. It is about Dora Maar, but Dora Maar, again, depicted by Picasso, and Orlan, I mean, she inserts herself into this. So it is, and for example, you know, at the very beginning we thought, oh, perhaps we will invite some contemporary artists who are inspired by surrealism to do a work, and so we checked if the artists we think that might have been inspired by Dora Maar if they were, but they weren't because they, they didn't really know about her work. So did you feel a sense of responsibility then that you that are falling on you to tell this story for the first time, to give her the voice that has been denied her for 50 years? I think doing history, history of art, is uh, also like remembering the, <laughs> the old stories, but also like giving food for young artists, young generations. So we are doing... And it's important to to have a catalog also because sometimes you know the, the exhibition lasts too short and you know it's uh, something really short ephemeral. And there's the book, a very beautiful catalog here on the yeah, table. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the student and all the, the various public they need you know they need books they need to have access uh, not only for the knowledge but also maybe to help them to think about life differently because it could be. An but I think that there is uh, something more about this responsibility. Uh, you know, I'm coming from a part of Europe that is on the margins and it's not in the mainstream of power, of economy, of politics. And I was always feeling that the history is not just because the history is made by these who are power, who are in power, who, who, who have... Um, uh, money and who are in the mainstream and I never liked it and uh, and I think that the role of, of historians not only but among others is to look on what was omitted, what was in the margins, what was uh, not seen because there was no power or there was a kind of power that was yeah, eliminated, and uh, and uh, this is part of the history of um, of Dora Maar, of a lot of women, but not only the 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 countries that were colonized. They have their own history that was just not seen by by Europeans, that was just erased. And I think that um, uh, yeah, I mean also because of our personal experience, we we've feel that the things should be done like that. And fortunately, we work in an institution that gives us opportunity to, to do it, which is really great. 
the main reason why we wanted to kick off this series about what it means to be European through the prism of artists, through Dora Maar, through somebody who has not been talked about, has not been known. And I think through the, well, through the year, our, ca- our cafe series will focus on better known artists. So we're, going, we're looking at Gunter Grass and Arvo Part later in the year, but also at um, Django Reinhardt, who you have, might have heard as we came in this evening, who's the wonderful Roma musician, uh, kind of the um, Manouche music that we played in that we thought would bring to life the Paris of the of the 40s. Um, uh, and Django Reinhardt and uh, uh, Felix de Roy, Roy, who's a phenomenal Dutch artist, that will, Dutch theatre maker, who we'll talk about later in the year. So it's a real mix of, of lesser-known and better-known voices that we wanted to bring in. I, I wanted to give you an opportunity to ask, to talk, to uh, offer, any, offer any questions and reflections to to Tamalis and to Carolina and also to Victoria. Is there any, any questions? And Marif, there's, there's a few, yeah. Do, do we know anything about uh, Dora Maas' philosophical inclination in the last years of her life, which may have inspired these remarkable abstract paintings that she made, which to me were the thing that most impressed me at the exhibition? Um, I'm not sure if we know a lot about her philosophical inclinations. Uh, she was quite philosophy engaged in the 1930s. We know that um, after the war, she and it's it's a known fact she became very Catholic. So she was very much inspired by um, uh, by religious texts. And what is interesting, and we discovered it uh, during the research, that these abstract paintings, but they're geometrical ones. I'm not sure they are shown here as well. No, they don't have. No? They don't have one. Uh, but she also was doing geometrical abstraction, and we discovered that actually it is um, an interpretation of the interiors of churches in southern France. And she was going to masses and doing sketches uh, and then she just made them abstract so we wouldn't know it without finding her scrapbooks um, yeah so there was something quite spiritual in her late work no, during the 50s and the 60s when she's she she she's doing the uh, abstract paintings. Uh, she was close. If you look at the scene at the at the moment in France, there were a few artists, like Catholic one, and uh, they um, and they were doing abstraction because of their faith. So it was a part of abstraction movement, like the religious one. And she was, I can't say she was part of it uh, because it's not in the book. But if you now that you you. you we know about her work, we can relate that, pen, that kind of paintings, paintings to this movement. Thank you. Uh, I have a question. Uh, to me, Dora Maar reminds a lot of um, Frida Kahlo, who also uh, tried to come out of the shadow of her famous husband and who was also very much about style and fashion and uh, spoke through images. Uh, but my question about Dora Maar is, do we know much about her public statements, or did she communicate um, in any other ways apart from photography? And did she relate in any way to the political events that she lived through? Because she lived through the Second World War, she lived in, the, in France, which collaborated. Do we know anything about that part of her life? Oh, yeah. She was um, in the 30s. She was really involved into 
um, political movement. She was anti. She signed many um, um, political tracts with the surrealist against fascism. So she was really. Um, like militant, she was going to meetings, and she was, uh, um, I don't, she was not um, um, distributing tracts in, uh, in the street, but she was involved in intellectual way, and she pushed Picasso. She, Picasso was already politicized, but she helped him to do the Guernica painting. To uh, so she she was like for the during the Spain War, she was really um, aware of what's happening. But she didn't. Uh, but maybe like a lot of women at that uh, part of the women at that time, she didn't speak out in the in the newspapers or she didn't like give some discourse some speeches like this because um, and she didn't wrote any books so and she and we didn't find any articles so the only writings we have from her it's like personal writings where she exposed her feelings and sometimes her ideas but so she's kind of Mute, I would say, but only expressing through our images. And uh, the thing, I was definitely thinking about what the experience of living through the occupation. Do you have any? I mean, d- does the work change letters. during that time? There's letters from that time. What do, What have you learnt from her experience of living in farm, living in Paris during the occupation? Uh, the paintings speak there uh, the by painting. themselves. Yes, you see, but we don't have a lot in the because the space were. Is smaller here, but all the paintings during um, the beginning of the of the war, there are paintings um, close to the, the river, the Seine, and it's where uh, she has a studio and Picasso also, and they are really sad paintings, and it's and they uh, and they are also uh, still life. She's doing at that moment. It's really like you can see it in the, the you can see them in the books, and they are like really simple, uh, still life, really uh, grayish, uh, um, just a knife or uh, some bread on the on the table, and it you can feel the solitude of the of the of the war uh, on those paintings. So she, I think that she mostly speak through her images of painting mm. and not, you know, not publicly. publicly. And unfortunately, there is like very few letters that that are here and they are not related to political facts, so it's... Yeah. And to follow up from that question about the Frida Kahlo, was there something... Uh, uh, did that come... Did you think about Frida Kahlo at all when you were thinking about the show? And, 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 and I suppose the follow-up question is whether or not you did. Was there something quintessentially like non-South American but, but European about her work that, struck, you know, that, that makes her quite different to Frida Kahlo? I would say that we didn't, uh, we didn't, we didn't think about Frida Kahlo in particular. Of course, we thought about many other women artists that were in couple with uh, famous and successful artists, especially that just before there was an exhibition at Saint Pompidou Mess about artistic couples. It was called Modern Couples, and it was, I think, done in um, in Barbican. Um, so, and there was quite a lot of stories of a similar kind. Uh, but um, uh, so yeah, 
So this is part of the answer. And about the European aspect, you know, the, the Dora Maar, as we said before, she was very somehow representative for her generation in the 1930s. And it's just unbelievable, but unbelievable, unbelievable when you see all these artists in the, before the Second World War with very few means, but as soon as they have some money, they go in a country in Europe. They all go to Spain to see what was happening in the Republican Spain. They go to Portugal, which was so poor, but they are interested in that country. They go to Italy. They go to England. Uh, they go also to, uh, the, um, to the parts of England that are poor. We have at the same time um, Giselle Freunde uh, that is doing incredible documentary work. Uh, so, you know, they were they were going to Central Europe, so they are very much uh, moving as soon as, as they can. They are uh, in, and, and also Paris is absolutely representative and fascinating for this in that time, because in Paris in the 1930s, you had all possible nationalities. They were all trying to communicate in French, better or worse, and it was extremely international. You had... I mean, yeah, it's all Hungarians, Germans. Um, Some Russian emigres. Yeah. Yeah, of course, that's a very interesting point. Um, thank you. Any other thoughts, questions? There's one, there's one there as well. Thank you. Hi. I had two questions, actually. The first one was about how does, it, how does the curatorial process work when you've curated a show for the Centre Pompidou and then it comes to a different space? It's maybe a slightly different audience, but it's also slight, it's a different size exhibition so I was really interested in the video that you referenced is, was at the beginning of the French, the show in Pompidou which referenced her as a photographer as someone who was recognised for that work and in the, in the show at the Tate I was struck by the fact that the only time we hear her speak is an interview about um, Guernica and it's a fairly it's quite an obnoxious interview because it's so much about um, Picasso and his vision and even the things that she's saying that she knows herself are being challenged. And I was really... I was actually amazed that it was included in that way because it, it kind of undoes a lot of what you see. Um, so I was quite interested in that because then it becomes the only voice, the only time you hear her voice. Um, and the other question was just about her advertising career because some of those images were really fantastic, like the hair, the petrolane kind of, it, I just thought it was amazing work. Wow, lots of questions. Are you going to, how do you want to start? The first one? How does, it, how does the exhibition change? Like how, do you, how does the exhibition change uh, uh, these are, the story I mean, we, told? We, we can't uh, tell the details of all the kitchen of, of this, but you know, with the, uh, it's, um, it's Partly it's practical solutions that we agreed that, okay, the exhibition, the content is made by three of us with Amanda Maddox, but then in each place the show is adapted to the space by the curator who is in the exhibition. So for Tate, it is Emma Lewis who developed it for that, and 
they coordinated a lot with Amanda Maddox because they had to have the, exactly the same works because of the transport issues. So it is very practical. And it's going to Getty next. It's, it's, the next stop is the Getty. Right. And they had slightly smaller space. And also uh, the context uh, for Doramar in Paris and in, uh, um, in England, in Great Britain or United States is not the same. Uh, in Paris, some... You know, for example, the film that with which we opened the exhibition, like everybody knows this film in Paris. And also, we in, in our exhibition, you had a lot of slight projections from her negatives because it is a tremendous archive and we wanted a lot uh, to, to share it with our public while in the Tate there was no place for it uh, because the space was smaller. So, And we just agreed that, that everybody... I mean that, that in each space there is you know, slight differences, although the structure remains the same. And um, as far as I know, perhaps there is somebody from the Tate here to correct me. But because the Tate made just before a project about Picasso, they wanted a lot to have this link a little bit stronger than than we decided. That's very interesting. I, I mean, I was thinking as you were talking and listening to your comment, I was thinking that it's quite unusual to go around Tate Modern and to go backwards. Like normally you, they're very good at, phenomenally good at taking you through, through an exhibition and, and then you leave in the gift shop. And this one you have to go back through. And so you rewind on her life. You go back through Picasso and you end up back in the commercial photography and the other work. And I thought that was very special. I don't know if it was deliberate, but actually as an experience to go backwards through Picasso was very, it really brought those, so some of those ideas to life really in real, you know, it was very vivid. But it was, you know, it, it was, was some practical, it's thing. practical thing because usually creators, we want like, a different, yes. uh, a, a different exit, but um, but him, him always they have like space issues. So, um, so but I think that the, the, she will be happy to know that <laughs> the public is not, you know, um, embarrassed by going back to the to okay. the entrance. That's some good feedback. Yes. <laughs> and what about what about the other question about the commercial side, uh, the some of the images. Uh, what was the question? Sorry. The question was how striking some of them were. Yeah, the, oh, the, yes, the, the advertising, like the, the Petrolan. Yeah, but you have to, you, you, maybe you, you saw it, you noticed it in the, in the show. Petrolan was a project, and we don't know for the moment if it was used by the company. You know what I discovered recently? That there was a competition. Really? Okay, so we are doing research. It's amazing, <laughs> it's ongoing research. So, so the Petrolan is the hair with the... Is it the, my right? Is the woman on profile with her hair is billowing out? No, it's just like um, you are talking about just the, the hair, like yeah. a kind of uh, wig with the, the product. The hair, yes. The yes. Hair. And in the show, it, there's the, we are, it's, it's one, our negatives. And so we know that the, the, the image was um, published in a really important magazine at that moment, Arzimeti Graphic, to show like the best samples of photographers doing mm. advertising. But uh, we didn't know until now if it was used by Petrolan, because you have to know that at that moment, it was the beginning of uh, the use of photography in, in advertising. So... Maybe um, the art, I would say, art director of the company who 
were progressive, but you have to think about the public. So maybe sometimes the images are really uh, fascinating, really radical, but um, I think that there were a lot of discussions. So um, it's true that she's, uh, uh, she's quite amazing with the, her experiment, experiments, but um, if you remember the same type of case, like the portrait of Nush, uh, the um, years lie in Les années vous get in French, and you see the, um, the web, the, the, spi oh, the, spider's the, the spy web. web. Yes. Uh, maybe we can put it again. So, uh, at the back of one of the prints uh, we found, it's, it says it's like pro uh, pu advertising project, but we don't know for which company. Or, it, or if it was even published. Published? No, we didn't find. Only we know that there were two prints, two yes, two prints, but we didn't know if it was used. Uh, so, uh, but she did a lot, as Carolina said. She did exhibition at that moment, and it was important for photographers to get maybe more commission to do those exhibition to show that they were uh, they can do everything with the photography. So it was important to do that kind of of works also. Maybe you want to add? I uh, just uh, want to ask you, the curators, would, uh, would she be discovered to such extent if she wasn't lover of Picasso? We don't know because probably if she if she uh, hadn't met Picasso and she hadn't been his lover, uh, she probably would continue to do surrealist and modern photography, uh, and she would continue to exhibit. You know, she had a certain number of individual exhibitions, so she would probably continue to exhibit as photographer. So eventually, she would become uh, a known modern photographer. So uh, we can't we, we can't uh, really answer well. I know what you mean, and um, it's uh, it's a complicated question because, of course, the fact that she was subject of like uh, the specialists say like about six hundred uh, um, paintings or drawings or graphics by Picasso. This makes the whole story exciting, but I don't know. We are tired with this point of view. And they were, and uh, yeah, perhaps there won't be so many questions about her. But actually, look how many artists. What's what you were saying are still. I mean, we don't, we are not suspicious about the fact that a woman was somebody's lover, and we don't always ask questions. You know, I'm just working now on a work on a woman who was wife of a very famous Polish painter and nobody knew she was an artist because for 40 years she was doing a lot of wonderful work, but everything was in drawers. So, I mean, it's... Well, we've been very privileged to have had had the, the glimpse of her work through your your curatorial vision. So thank you so much for like for for bringing for continuing and for really pushing her legacy, pushing her work into the public eye and enabling her to have an ongoing legacy. Um, so thank you so much and thank and you. Thank, thank you, you very much. Oh, thank you for coming over from Paris for it and and to Victoria for giving us a little glimpse of your poetry. When can we hear you, can we hear you again?
my mind's gone blank. But oh, I'm doing a thing um, at the ICA um, in March on Toni Morrison. Oh. Yeah, so it's marking the sort of one year since her passing, and it, it should be a really amazing evening. Should, that yeah. should be beautiful. And also, yeah. your mother tongue videos are online. Aren't yes, they? they're, they're all really online. gorgeous. I really mm-hmm. recommend that you you, you hear mm-hmm. and watch. Mm-hmm. The, that project too it's really phenomenal thank, thank you. you so much victoria and and before we kind of we exit the stage i'm going to we're going i think murray for you up for one more one more piece of music just to finish us off this evening sure thank you <laughs> for coming over from Finland for, uh, and for beginning our, be- helping us to begin our journey together. So, all being well, you will hear more from Maria for, with Lash Arts over the next few years as we begin our new show. And I have to say an enormous thank you to all of our partners from this evening, to, to the Finnish Institute for enabling Marif to come, from, to the Institut Francais for bringing over for Carolina and for Demalis, and to Poet in the City for introducing us to Victoria, which was really found wonderful, and to you all for coming. I hope you enjoyed the recording. It was a total pleasure for me to listen to it again and be reminded of the need to listen and look deeper. I love Clarolina's words on the responsibility that she feels to look for what was omitted, what's on the margins and what's unseen because of a vacuum of power. The history has traditionally been made by people who have power. I'd like to pledge our podcast to the pursuit of the margins. Thanks again to all our international partners and artists. A quick reference note to confirm that the line, prepare a face to meet the faces that you meet, the Victoria mentions, comes from T.S. Eliot's The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock. Thank you also to Richmix for hosting the live event. The team behind the Dash Arts podcast is me, Josephine Burton, Christina Catalina and Natalie Beach. We're going to play out the podcast with the full piece that Maruf played during the evening. You can find more episodes wherever you get your podcasts or by going to our media section on our website, dasharts.org.uk. If you like the Dash Arts podcast, follow the show, share and please leave us a review. It helps us stay visible and would mean the world to us. I'm Josephine Burton, back in a fortnight with more conversations at the Dash Arts podcast. Thank you for listening.
صورتم برا
Thank you. Larif, that was absolutely beautiful. Thank you. 